Hello and welcome to another episode of Media Files. I'm Andrea Carson, one of the team regulars. In today's episode, we'll hear from Jason Sainnow, weather editor of the Washington Post and previously climate change analyst for the US government. Media Files is joined by a special guest host, my Latrobe colleague, Laurie Zion. Laurie visited Jason in Washington and asks what it's like to report on climate change and weather events and, in a time of media upheaval, had Jason's role reporting weather for the Post has become one of the best known in the United States. In earlier times, Jason formed the group that became known as the Capital Weather Gang. Here he is, in conversation with Laurie, who is a professor of journalism at La Trobe University and author of the 2017 book, The Weather Obsession. Jason, what is the Capital Weather Gang? Sure, so we are the Washington Post weather team and we've been working with the Post since uh, 2010 and uh, we provide in-depth Washington DC weather coverage. Um, every day we do foreca- two forecast updates a day. Uh, but in addition to that, we also provide uh, coverage of national and international weather stories um, and what we call weather adjacent topics like astronomy and climate change, anything which relates to weather. So. Um, We've been doing this for for a while. Um, We've placed a real emphasis on reader engagement. We've got a very active uh, social media uh, presence on Facebook and on Twitter. uh, And we are very keen to uh, interact with our readers and uh, and have them ask us questions and try to answer them and try to be as responsive as possible, understanding that weather is a two-way conversation and we can benefit from the feedback we get back from readers and they can benefit, of course, from uh, our knowledge and our expertise. And it, it becomes uh, particularly useful when we have a line of storms coming through. We see those reports coming in from all of our readers on social media uh, so we can get ground truth to what we're actually forecasting. Well, I arrived in DC a couple of days ago and yesterday there was one of those superstorms and it, it's like the superstorm produced a super story, uh, cyberspace imitating nature. Um, tell us a bit about how that all built up in terms of your coverage of the storm yesterday and the kind of engagement you got as it was unfolding. Sure. So um, for for about uh, a day or two, we knew there was a possibility of severe storms in the Washington area. And so we began to, I guess, on Wednesday, um, gently sound the alarm without being too uh, hyperbolic about it, Um, just noting there's a chance of severe storms. And then um, I think on uh, Thursday morning, we have a storm indicator on three levels, and we said it was a level two day. So not our most severe uh, uh, storm level, but uh, second second most severe. And uh, so we, we put that out early in the morning, and then um, when it became clear, or at least more clear, that there would be storms moving into the area, we did a detailed um, story explaining what we thought could happen, detailing the timing, the different hazards that we could be dealing with and uh, when the all clear would be, when it would pass. And uh, of course, we also, in addition to providing that basic information, we discussed sort of the, um, the meteorological background, you know, what's, what's causing this, uh, uh, what are the uh, atmospheric conditions which are conducive to this potential storm outbreak, and what could go wrong with the forecast. And so we discuss all that, we put it out there. Then the Weather Service, they issue a severe thunderstorm watch, um, about an hour or two before the storms move into the region, that's when we uh, are really getting into our deep storm mode and our intense coverage. And then the storms cross the mountains and uh, we start co- covering them in real time. The warnings start to uh, 
uh, be issued. Uh, we're trying to keep up with them. The storms were moving really fast, like, you know, 35, 40 miles per hour. So it was hard to keep up and the warnings were coming out like every five minutes. And it's actually challenging um, in a, on, on digital platforms to uh, blast out all that information when something's developing so fast. It's actually easier if you're doing um, television or if you're doing um, like a Facebook Live uh, and you're speaking in front of a radar just to keep it going nonstop. You call that wall-to-wall -wall coverage. It's actually a little bit more div difficult on digital because you're trying to blast this information across multiple platforms and get it to all of your readers where they're consuming information. And so um, we're doing that the best we can. We, you know, we were also getting photos in from people from all over the area showing us what was happening. Um, and then finally, we had the tornado warnings. And, you know, of course, those are the, um, the, the most severe hazard we deal with here. Uh, and um, we had one just north of Washington in Columbia, Maryland, which is a northern suburb. And uh, then we had one for the district itself about 15 minutes later. And so, um, again, the challenge of, uh, of covering these, uh, these really fast-moving storms is... is uh, is uh, is interesting but uh, that's what that's what we're doing and uh, we uh, as these storms were moving through we were getting then we were getting images of trees on the ground and uh, the, some damage to homes and uh, just trying to keep mm. keep people informed and keep people safe we obviously put a lot of uh, preparedness information into our uh, into our tweets and into our stories telling people they need to stay inside not be on the roads and for tornadoes being a lowest level of their house away from windows so we're putting out all that information at a breakneck pace and uh, and also trying to uh, uh, listen to what people what was happening in the community um, you've just told us about you know a very busy work day for a journalist but you started out your career as a meteorologist. How did you morph from from weather to journalism? Sure. So um, I had a um, background in atmospheric science. That was my uh, master's degree, and I was a weather geek since I was about ten years old. I've been obsessed, and uh, so I would never have guessed that. Yeah, never. <laughs> so, um, so I, I started my career working on climate change issues at uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, and. Uh, I, while I was in college and graduate school, in addition to my interest in weather, I also became really interested in the climate change issue and, and all of its various dimensions from science to policy. So I had the opportunity to work at the Environmental Protection Agency on uh, climate change science and policy. So that was a cool job. And I did that for 10 years, but I had to get my weather fix in. So I independently started a uh, website for DC weather um, on the side, um, which was, uh, we call it a side hustle, and uh, working evenings and mornings, weekends when I wasn't at my day job. And um, that was called CapitalWeather.com. It was a, um, a, a portal to DC weather information. It was blog style, so it had that two-way communication so people could comment and ask questions. And that's kind of where we built our audience. And it wasn't just me. I had other contributors working with me, and we, and we built this over time, got some press. So it was like setting up a band. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. And then um, and then the, the Washington Post noticed what we were doing. They were interested in expanding their weather coverage and uh, reached out to us to see if we would do it for them. So how did that relationship evolve into where you are now, where, where you've got a couple of people working with you and uh, you're on staff at, at the Washington Post? And, and this has all happened, by the way, during a period when, when a lot of newspapers have been laying off reporters. Right, yeah. So it was uh, 2007, the end of 2007, the Post reached out to us. And initially, um, we worked for the Post on a contract basis. So I wasn't in the newsroom. I wasn't a Washington Post employee. I was a contractor. And um, so um, we would, um, we basically 
supported our um, our website. We redirected it and started just blogging for the Washington Post. And uh, we did that on a contract basis for three years. Um, and it was fine, but it was very difficult because I was working for the Post at the same time I was doing my EPA day job. So um, wasn't sustainable for the lo- in the in the long run. So um, uh, at the end of the contract period, um, I told the Post that uh, we it needed to either be a full time um, deal or I w- we would need to just part and I would need to just focus on my on my EPA career. And uh, fortunately, they stepped to the, up to the table and created a full time position. And uh, so from 2010 to 2014, it was me. And then I had the rest of my team working on a freelance basis. But in 2014, they then allowed me to hire a second full-time person. And so, so now we're a team of two, um, plus our contract contributors and our freelance contributors. So we have grown over time. And um, because we've been able to grow over time, we've been able to expand our coverage from being more DC-focused, really being national and, and international. I mean, we um, we are sort of the um, hub of all of Washington Post hurricane coverage, and hurricanes generate a ton of traffic. Um, and the last two hurricane seasons have been bad ones for the U.S., so that's um, uh, worked out well for the Post to have this sort of in-house weather expertise because um, – People really, really uh, eat that content up, the, the hurricane coverage, because it has such a huge impact on coastal communities and inland communities as well. It's interesting to hear you tell that story because so much weather coverage in, in uh, so many newspapers is done by the most junior journalist who doesn't necessarily have any meteorological background and might be a cadet reporter. Do you think that something's been proved by your own career about the kind of skill set that you really need to be able to manage the kinds of stories that come out of weather at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of uh, news organizations, they do these fluffy weather stories, you know, two or 300 words, just summarize what happened and maybe without a lot of meteorological depth. But um, I think um, where we've provided value is in that in-depth commentary. And I think there are a lot more weather geeks out there than people ever recognized. And because weather affects so many people, and especially the U.S., we have some of the most extreme weather in the entire world. Um, you know, there's an appetite for this information and for people to really get into the science and explain the various possibilities in the forecast. And then after the event, um, do sort of post-mortem analysis of what went right and what went wrong. And we found uh, people really like that transparency. They like the depth. And um, we've been able to build our audience that way. And I think, you know, sure, you can, um, you know, any news organizations can can, can can very briefly summarize the weather, but if you provide uh, value added, um, people will come to you when the weather is high stakes, when it matters. Yeah. When, you, when you develop that expertise, um, that's when you can really capitalize on having that in-house. And I think that's what the Post has learned by having this weather team in-house. They can really capitalize when uh, we have these very high impact events uh, affecting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. This is Washington DC. Have you ever had any feedback from the man in the White House? You know, not not directly. I think, um, you know, back in 2010, when we had our snowiest winter on record, it was as a result of our blog that the term snowmageddon went viral. And President Obama uh, referenced snowmageddon in one of his uh, news conferences. So, um, And I understand some of his uh, staff, some of Obama's staff were uh, religious readers of our blog. So I think some of that percolated uh, to him. So, um, but um, yeah, you know, I, I know there, um, you know, being in Washington, we've been around long enough. A lot of politicians, um, lawmakers, they follow our, uh, our Twitter feeds. So uh, we know we're being read by highly influential people. 
Well, that brings me to climate change, which, of course, is an issue which still polarises the political class anyway in, in the States. You've written that it's irresponsible for weather reporters not to engage with climate change. But where do you draw the line and how do you actually engage audiences with climate change when there's severe weather? Sure. So what we what we try to do is we try to connect the dots where they exist. Mm. And um, obviously, um, with certain weather extremes like heat waves, which are becoming more intense, uh, heavy precipitation events, there's a climate signal there. And so we try to pro- provide that climate context because it's there. We're, our weather, weather statistics are changing. They're not changing by accident. Um, so you ha- that's why I say it's our responsibility to connect the dots, because if you don't, you're not telling the whole story. Um, because, you know, if we're seeing a lot more record warm days, you know, you, you, you have to explain to people why that's happening. And the scientific community has a, um, a point of view on that, and it's supported by a large amount of evidence. And so if you're responsible journalistically, you've got to make the connection. And so that's, that's been our point. Now, we don't try to shove it down people's throats. We don't try to beat the horse dead, um, and we don't try to get political about it. But we do, um, we are forceful in um, connecting and making those connections where they exist, and um, and also countering misinformation when people um, try to deny, you know, some of the realities of what's happening, um, including uh, people within the administration. Uh, we're not afraid to go out there and correct information which is scientifically um, off base. And there was an example of that, I think, a couple of years ago when James Dellingpole made some reference to a coming freeze or I can't remember the details of it but I think you you, you arced up at the time and 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 tore down what he was saying yeah we, we've done that on a number of occasions uh, from from bite Bart and um, and other uh, sort of I, I hate to use a political term but right-leaning news organizations which, which have tended to uh, express these doubts about connections between climate change and weather um, and when people point to you know a small pocket of cold when the rest of the warm is abnormally warm, um, and, you know, we, we've made clear that, um, you know, just because it gets cold in winter doesn't mean that climate warming isn't happening mm. or that because you have an unusual snowstorm in a certain part of the uh, mid-latitudes uh, that, that climate change isn't real. You had James, James Inhofe, a senator from Oklahoma, bringing a snowball to the Senate floor to try to prove a point. And, you know, those, those sorts of stunts and those sorts of tactics we, we try to expose as being... Um, and not not credible, and um, so that's what we've done. Something that I think will interest Australian audiences is you referred before to the fact that you're also doing your own forecasts. So what's your relationship with the material that's generated by the National Weather Service, which is the American equivalent of our Bureau of Meteorology? That's a great question. I think, um, you know, for national weather stories, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, things like that, we do tend to rely on them because they are the trusted source for... Um, like the National Hurricane Center and the Storm Prediction Center for forecasts of uh, the, those extremes. But um, in our local market here in D.C., we, we do have a fair amount of expertise. So we do our own forecasts. And um, usually, I would say 95% of the time, we're in uh, very good agreement with the National Weather Service. There's a local forecast office for the Washington region based in Sterling, Virginia. And we've got a very cordial relationship with them. They run media workshops. So we work together. But once in a blue moon, it happens, um, you know, they'll issue an advisory or they'll issue uh, some sort of forecast, which we don't agree with. And we'll explain why. And um, we'll do so in a respectful way. 
you know, there's nothing to be gained for us to be uh, to be combative or to not have a good relationship with that office mm -hmm. because, you know, they're providing uh, really important information and uh, we, we consider them partners. But, you know, we ha you know, obviously, you know, we know this area well. We have a lot of experience working here. So occasionally, um, you know, we have to um, side differently from them. But um, when we do, we explain it. Do you have a rain bias in your forecast? And I think I, I might have the terminology wrong here, but I've read that private forecasters tend to over forecast rain because it's better to be wrong about rain and it turns out to be a nice day than to say it's going to be a sunny day and then it pours. I, you know, I don't, I, we try to play it straight. I, I think, um, you know, we, we, we've tried to build up our credibility over time by being a trusted source and we don't want to be viewed as exaggerating or overhyping the weather. I think, you know, where this comes into play a little bit though is, you know, obviously we have to try to generate readership and, you know, we have to write headlines and headlines are sometimes the only things people read. And if you can't get them past the headline, um, and they don't read your story, then why even have written the story? Because you want you want them to click. So uh, sometimes, you know, it's hard to find the right balance of um, being both accurate and credible, um, and, and but also um, not boring not boring your readers. So some sometimes you might fall on the wrong side of that line. Sometimes maybe you're 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 a little bit too hyperbolic. And you don't qualify your forecast enough. On the other hand, sometimes if you're too dull, you're too boring. Maybe you're underselling the risk. So it, the, the challenge is finding that sweet spot. So you're you're getting it right. So you're getting people to read your material, and you're providing credible, interesting information, but you're not um, you're not overselling it. So that's that's some, something we have to we have to we have to deal with. And you know sometimes we'd rather err on getting people to read than being boring. And so that might lead some people to think that our, our forecasts are, are, are overdone, but um, we, we do our best. But not every storm is a monster. No, I mean, not <laughs> exactly. And so, but we do want to make all weather interesting and we do want to give people the, a reason to read. Now, obviously, you know, we have a lot of readers who only read when the weather is, um, you know, severe or, or impactful. And so uh, we, we appreciate that, but we do have a core readership who comes to us every day uh, who wants the weather information presented in a useful and entertaining way, and that's what we try to do. As someone whose who's media career is, has uh, involved so much engagement with audiences, do you think that during the digital era, people have become more weather literate than they were before? I definitely think so here in the D.C. area. Now, we, a challenge we face here is that people are uh, a little bit transient. You know, people come to D.C. for short times and they leave, they, they move elsewhere. But um, there are plenty of permanent residents, and I think for our longtime readers, they've become much more informed and much more savvy, and they point things out to us because they start off by reading us, and then they dive deeper and learn more, and uh, we all learn from each other that, that way, so it's really beneficial. How's what you're doing now looking in the future what's the long-term forecast for for weather reporting yeah i think we just have to continue to be on all platforms and meet people where they're consuming information that's a challenge because people are all over the place and people have so many different consumption preferences you know whether it's twitter whether it's facebook whether it's snapchat instagram whether it's tv and so you just have to be you just have to um you have to really keep your hands on the pulse of where people are getting their information and delivering them that information, not only where they are, but in the formats they want. So some people might prefer text, some people might prefer video. We've read research which shows that on people's phones, they prefer text. Uh, but we, we also understand that during these um, 
high impact weather events like we had yesterday in Washington, you know, when you have storms blasting through that being in front of a camera and being able to walk people through an event and show them what's happening in real time, that's very powerful. So I think for us as a weather team, I think we need to grow our capacity to do more of that real time video coverage, even though we've we're really strong on text and you know we've got a really big um, digital following. I think if we could also on top of that or in addition to that, have some really compelling video coverage when we have breaking weather events. I think that will help us grow. And I think the TV industry, they're kind of have to do the opposite, right? Because they're really, really strong with the video coverage. But um, they're just now or just in the last couple of years doing more digital articles because they have to, because they realize that, you know, people aren't just uh, watching the five, six, ten o'clock news. Um, they want weather information at all times of day, and they want some of the deeper types of analysis and information that we provide. They've learned that from us, at least here in the D.C. market. So we have some of our competitors doing some of the same things that we've been doing for years, and they've just started that up. So we've got to, for us, we've also have to make sure that we don't become complacent, and we've got to continue innovating and improving the way we, we present because, you know, we don't pretend to have it all figured out right now. Jason Simon, thanks so much for talking to us for Media Files and for letting us into the Washington Post. It's a beautiful building and uh, we've really enjoyed chatting to you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. And that was Jason Samenow, weather editor of the Washington Post and founder of the Capital Weather Gang, speaking to Professor Laurie Zion. This is Media Files, a podcast from The Conversation. Production this week is the work of Andy Hazel. I'm Andrea Carson. Thank you for listening.